So if you have your Bibles with you, I would ask you to turn there. This is a well-known passage and this is one of those passages that you could spend much time in it and it will give you new insights into uh, the meaning of the passage. And we cannot deal with everything in this text today, but simply an overview of the passage. Here I want to explain to you Satan's identity and his strategy so that we could defeat him because we know his scheme. Now if you will look at verse 3, Jesus is in the wilderness led by the Holy Spirit and he fasted for 40 days. And verse 3 says, and the tempter came. Right? So Satan's identity that we could learn from this verse is that he is the tempter. And he comes to him as the tempter in verse 3. But if you look at verse 5, the name changes. The word is now the devil. So the tempter is the devil. And literally, in verse 3, the tempter is the one who is tempting. The focus is ongoing in his ongoing activity that does not stop. If you would ask me, who is the devil? I would say he is the Satan. But in this text, he comes to us, comes to Christ as the one who is tempting Jesus. The devil or Satan is more than the tempter. Let me give you a few passages that uh, describe the identity of Satan. In Ephesians 2, he is the prince of the power of the air. John 8.44 says, He, the devil, he was a murderer from the beginning, and he is a liar and father of lies. In 2 Corinthians 4, he is the God of this age. Revelations 20, chapter 20, he sees the dragon, that ancient serpent, who is the devil and Satan, and bound him for a thousand years. So he is the dragon, the ancient serpent, who is the devil and Satan. Basically the same thing. Devil and Satan. Mark chapter 1 has the same temptation. Mark 1.13 says, And he was in the wilderness for 40 days, being tempted by Satan, Mark says. So in our text, he's the tempter. He's the devil. But elsewhere, he is also Satan. So what we see here is not simply a minion of Satan, 
but the devil, Satan, basically the same thing. Literally, the devil means the accuser in Greek. Satan means adversary in Hebrew form and in Greek as well. But in Matthew 4, as you have seen, he is a tempter. He is the tempter. He comes as a tempter. Why focus on tempting of Jesus? Why hear you hear about tempter? The presence of this, the same devil as the tempter, links us back to the garden. Jesus is in the wilderness, but the writer, Matthew, is basically giving us a hint that you should think of this passage and what Jesus is going through back to the garden where Satan, the devil, came also as what? As the tempter. Right, in the garden, Satan didn't kill anybody, even though he's the murderer from the beginning. In the garden, and here, Satan, the devil, the tempter, didn't possess or go into anyone. In the garden, he simply had to tempt Eve. In the wilderness in Matthew 4, in the beginning of Jesus' ministry, Jesus is, as you and I, we know, Jesus is the second Adam. He is in the wilderness because that's where Adam and Eve went after being kicked out of the garden, the paradise. Jesus begins His ministry in the wilderness to triumph over Satan, to bring us back to, from the wilderness, back to the garden. So here in this early stage of his life and ministry, public ministry, he is going through the temptation of Satan to prove himself that he is not only the second Adam, but that he is the last Adam. If he is simply the second Adam, if he fails here, then there will come the third Adam, but we know that is not the case. So he is the second Adam, where he will pick up where the first Adam failed, but as he defeats Satan here, he will prove himself to be the last Adam. We don't need anybody else. Jesus Christ will win and triumph over Satan. So we expect, in verse 3, the tempter came, we immediately think about that ancient serpent who will play the same trick, trying to tempt Jesus. Okay, so that's the identity. Satan in this text is the tempter. Now I want us to think about then how, who he is now, but how does he tempt Jesus, his strategy, his method. Verse 3, it says, 
The tempter came and what? Said to him. I want you to underline that word or stop. How does he tempt Jesus? What does he do in verse 3? He speaks. He says to him, There is nothing magical here or satanic about this in verse 3. Satan, the devil, basically the same thing. He does not cast spell over Jesus. He's not mixing a stew full of human bones. He's not threatening Jesus by screaming or yelling. The word is, he said. He does not bring images, statues. He does not bring a woman into the wilderness. He does not bring money or fortune, though they are included in the third temptation, in the glory of the world. I want you to notice here, the Satan who is the tempter, he simply speaks. He talks. He wants to have a conversation with you. That's how he tempts us. Therefore, we learn the devil or Satan is a rational creature. If you read all these sentences here in this text, he speaks. In the garden, he speaks. He reasons with you. He's not in the business of scaring you. He's not the boogeyman. He wants to own you. He wants to enslave you. So if you run away from him, he loses. So he's not scary at all in this text. Where and when does he speak in this text? When Jesus is alone. Just like when Eve was alone. So he knows when to approach you. He is not surrounded by his disciples. He just fasted 40 days and he's extremely hungry. That's when he sneaks up to Jesus. That's when he sneaks up, snuck up to Eve when she was alone in the garden. So we learn that this devil, the tempter, is a sly and stealthy creature. He comes to you, he comes to Jesus when he is and when you are at your lowest point, when you are at your weakest point. He does not come to Jesus in the beginning of his 40-day fasting. He knows how to wait. He knows when to come. He knows when to strike. So he is a very highly intelligent creature. He is a cunning creature. He is a wicked creature. He asks him three questions, three times. And he retreats back, but he will come back again. Because in Luke chapter 4, in the same description of the temptation. 
when the devil had finished every temptation, he left him until an opportune time. So he will come back again. He will wait for the best time to strike you. He is restless and tireless creature. He is all of that. And what does he say in verse 3? If you look at verse 3, And the tempter came and said to him, If you are the Son of God, we'll stop right there. He is the tempter. He knows when to come, when to sneak up to you. And he does not scare you away. He simply speaks. He talks. And the very first word out of his mouth, the tempter's mouth, is what? If you are the Son of God. And when I read this uh, a couple of weeks ago, it struck me as the, basically the same thing that he did in the garden. In the garden, he spoke to Eve. Did God really say? Here in verse 3, his first sentence is, If you are the Son of God. Jesus is the Son of God. So I found the chief strategy or methodology that Satan employs in enticing and tempting Jesus and in tempting you. That is to make God's statement into a question. His temptation is simple but effective. In Genesis, that's how Eve fell and Adam fell. In Genesis 2.17, God spoke to Adam. But from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, you shall not eat. For in that day you eat from it, you will surely die. In an indicative form, God spoke. Don't eat, you will die. But in Genesis 3, 1, the serpent comes to Eve and he says, Did God really say? And he plays more into that. You can eat from any tree in the garden. And Satan not only makes the sentence that God has spoken into a question, but also he plays in this way, casting doubt upon God's sincerity, God's goodness. And he tricks, he tempts Eve in that fashion. What about Jesus? If you are the Son of God, he says. But if you read all three Gospels that record the temptation of Christ, they all affirm that the temptation of Jesus, the wilderness sin, comes after the baptism of Jesus. If you know the baptism sin, this is what happens in that baptism of Jesus in the Jordan River. 
Behold, a voice out of the heavens said, This is my beloved what? In the baptism of Jesus, as he was praying, and he comes out of the water, you hear the, uh, the voice from heaven that says, This is my beloved Son, in whom I am well pleased. You see, in the garden, God spoke in chapter 2. And in chapter 3, serpent comes and, and flips that sentence into a question. Here too, in wilderness, in Matthew 4, he comes up to Jesus, but Jesus already heard God's voice affirming him as you are. This is my beloved son. And, and verse 3, Matthew 4, tempter comes and says to him, if you are the son of God. You see, the same thing is happening. God has spoken already. And Satan basically puts into that, into a question form. If you are the Son of God, well, God said, God had already spoken, He is my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. Therefore, Jesus does not have to prove to Satan that He is the Son of God. And He already knows that He is the Son of God. And he has to trust the voice that he heard from the heaven. His father's voice. And Adam and Eve, they also had to trust God's word that was spoken to them. Well, to Adam first in Genesis 2, before the creation of Eve. So what is Satan's chief strategy? That is to make you doubt God's infallible, inerrant word by questioning God's word. That's why in 2 Corinthians 4.2, Apostle Paul says, We have renounced things hidden because of shame, not walking in craftiness, or adulterating, tempering, twisting, distorting, and deceitfully using the Word of God. But by the manifestation of truth, commanding ourselves to everyone's conscience in the sight of God. So that's how. Who is he? He is the tempter. Second of all, how he speaks, but his aim is to twist God's word. He wants you to doubt what God had spoken already in his word. And let me ask you this, why? Why, why is he doing this? What is he after? You see, in chapter 4 here, he is not trying to kill Jesus. Remember, he's a murderer from the beginning. What does he gain by tempting Jesus? Let's say, Jesus turned the stones into bread. I mean, what's wrong with that? He could have. 
He jumps from the pinnacle of the temple to prove Satan wrong or to prove God's word to be true. What's wrong with that? Third temptation is pretty clear, right? You know, we know um, Jesus cannot bow down to Satan. So we know that. But first and second one is very difficult for us to understand what is going on. What he is after, Satan is after. Uh, before we talk about how to defeat or what he does to defeat, I think first thing as you are listening wherever you are is to think about this. First step as we think about this text is to take the temptation seriously. Um, we have as Christians we have this built-in theology of grace, forgiveness, eternal life, and perseverance of saints. So when we hear about this temptation of Jesus and uh, temptation, our temptation, not many Christians take that seriously because we say, well, I am a forgiven sinner, justified sinner. So if I give in to temptation, I mean, what is the, what is the big deal here? At the end of the day, I am saved person. I am secure in my eternal destiny. It's not of a big deal, we say. It is not immediately clear in first temptation and second temptation what Satan is trying to do. And we could spend more time in it, but we cannot do that. As I was meditating upon this text, I sit back and I relax and try to see the whole picture. My focus came not so much into what Satan is trying to do. Well, Satan basically trying to get him to listen and obey his command, his suggestions. But if you listen and if you read this text, what should come to the front to you, a picture should emerge, is not so much what Satan is trying to do, but how Jesus deals with this devil, the tempter, the Satan. Picture is very simple. Jesus is not listening to anything that Satan is saying or suggesting. All three times, if you read, Jesus is rejecting Satan's attempt. He's cutting him short. Yes, he is answering, but he is not like Eve. Eve gives not so accurate answer. And then Satan, the serpent, latches onto that not so certain, convinced answer and pulls her deeper into his, his lies. But Jesus is answering him probably for our sake, quoting the Bible verses, so that we could defeat Satan as well. But in verse 10, Jesus said to him, Go, Satan. Be gone, Satan. So what Jesus is doing is not 
flooding with Satan. I want you to notice that. If it is not clear to us, to us, first temptation and the second temptation, what is going on here? It was clear to Jesus and in his mind. He knows whatever is going on, if he listens to Satan, morally speaking, there's nothing really wrong by making stones into bread. He could have. But what you are looking at is Jesus defeating Satan, cutting him off. He's not letting him speak. He tempts Jesus and he answers him right back and he's not really answering him. He's not interested in having conversation going with Satan, but he is cutting him short. He's cutting it. He's cutting it. He's cutting it. And at the end, in verse 10, it says, Be gone, Satan. He does not want to spend time with the tempter. He does not want to have a prolonged conversation or have a long argument just to prove himself right, prove himself to be the Son of God. He doesn't do that. And that's what I want you to learn from him today from this text, his attitude. Jesus knows the devil is the serpent. And the temptation is that viper's venom. What's wrong with biting that fruit? What's wrong with listening and changing stones into bread? Well, just as the first parents ate that forbidden fruit, if Jesus eels a square inch into Satan the devil here, he will forfeit his mission as the last Adam. As the Son of God, as he is the Holy One of Israel, he not only cannot listen to Satan, he cannot spend time with this serpent. You understand? You have to shoot him. You have to cut him off. You cannot tinker with this serpent. Therein lies our danger. Not many Christians are scared of Satan because we think of us as we are the victors. We are secure in God's hand. All of that, you have to understand. Yes, in one sense that's true. But in another sense, you cannot spend time with the tempter or the temptation to see whether you are strong enough to defeat this Satan. You cannot, you cannot play with this serpent. Sooner or later, you and I will be bitten by this serpent and the price will be very, very high. What is he after? In the garden and in the wilderness, it is the same thing. Satan is after one thing, that is to cut you off from the presence and fellowship with your holy God, who is life to you. Temptation. Not only giving in to temptation, but just the danger of the temptation makes you 
useless for the kingdom of God, like Samson whose hair is cut off. You give in, you become powerless, and you become no threat to the kingdom of Satan. So practically speaking, you are one temptation away from spiritual and maybe physical ruin. You will forfeit your life, reputation, and good name of Christ and your family's well-being. And I want you to understand how serious temptation is. How dangerous that is. And we have to give much thought into this. And our basic stance, people, is whenever temptation comes, is to say, go away, Satan. That is our basic stance. We have to hate this one who comes to us and, and tempt us. There's no point in trying to prove yourself to be victorious. First thing that you see the Satan or temptation, you have to tell him to go away. You don't play with this thing. Sooner or later, it is we, we are sinners at default. How serious this thing is. So yesterday night, I was thinking, God, you showed me this text. I obviously, I prepared another sermon for today, thinking that we were going to meet in person. But this was something that I, we, as a family, we meditated for two weeks. And this week, not knowing that we are going to shut down because of the storm, that I wrote down a few things this week. And yesterday I was thinking, God, is this important thing? And I was convinced that, yes, temptation, you need to hear about the temptation. Whatever you are, wherever you are, whether you are young or old, where you, wherever, whatever your condition is. And I was convinced, yes, this is very important thing. So we are going to talk about briefly three answers. How and we could defeat this Satan who is the tempter. How he speaks to you. He wants to reason with you. He wants to engage you. And he's after you by flipping God's word indicative into a question what we can learn first answer how to defeat Satan is by trusting God's word in this text Jesus quotes the Bible three times all three times from Deuteronomy but if I could make that into a uh, vernacular, if I could translate what Jesus is doing. You see, we think about, when we think about quoting Bible verse, we think about that as some kind of exorcism, right? But you see here, when Jesus quotes the Bible verse, Satan is not scared. It's not the silver bullet. It is not, it is not something that he shoots out of his mouth and kills Satan. Satan does not run away. He's not scared. Nor does it dissolve into some kind of liquid. He does, you know, it, nothing like that happens here. 
what Jesus is doing here is not simply quoting the Bible verse to defeat Satan. No. What Jesus is doing is He is listening to God's Word. What Jesus is doing is not directed so much to Satan because He comes back second time, third time. But Jesus is listening and confirming God's Word and each and every time He is not listening to Satan's voice but He is listening to God's Word. So he is filling up his heart and mind with God's Word and drowning out all other voices. All of us, throughout the week, we are listening to the voices. Whether that voice is coming from the lyrics of your favorite singer, or the movies, the theme of the movies that is communicating to you, or your own voice. We are listening and always we are having conversation with voice. But what I could suggest to you is by filling your heart and mind with God's word, that Satan's word will not have a chance entering your mind. When you had just a feast, meal, you are not going to be tempted by this Bad meal set is before you. Temptation. Once again, Jesus is not quoting this Bible verses to, 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 to magically dispel him or kick him out of the wilderness. But it is himself listening to him. Another insight here is this. Jesus could have said in the first instance... If you are the Son of God, in verse 4, He could have said, Don't you know I heard the voice of God, my Father, from heaven when I was being baptized? But what does He do? He quotes the written Bible, which was written about 1500 years before Christ, all from Deuteronomy by Moses. Telling us what? We could trust and have full confidence in the written word of God as living and abiding voice of God. Jesus could have said, you know, I heard the voice. There are people, Christians, who want to listen to the living voice of God and, and, and you say, God, speak to me. God, you, you speak to me. But Jesus didn't have to turn to the experience of the audible voice, hearing Father's voice. But he could quote the written word three times and he will listen and trust that word of God. Right? So this is our life. We could have full confidence in this written word of God and fill your mind and heart with this. Second thing that I've noticed is that you know he is tackling the identity of Christ. If you are the Son of God, and I was thinking that's right, all of our sins stem from forgetting or compromising our identity in Christ. Who are you? We have to remember. 
when the temptation comes, we have to remember two things. We have already uh, seen from the catechism. You could say I'm a Christian. You could say I'm, I am justified Christian. But if we may borrow our language from our confession, you should say, I am a baptized into Christ Christian who is baptized and united to Christ in his death and his resurrection, Christian. So we have already read question 167. How is baptism to be improved by us? When temptation comes, we don't think about baptism, but you should. Because it teaches us Especially in the time of temptation, you and I can improve our baptism by drawing strength from the death and resurrection of Christ into whom we are baptized. And also by remembering who Christ is. Who is Jesus Christ? We could talk about many things about Christ, but I want you to remember who Christ is as the king, how he executes his office as the king even now. How does he execute the office of a king? He executes office of a king by preserving and supporting us under all of our temptations and sufferings, restraining and overcoming all of our enemies, you see. In the time of temptation, what do you do? Jesus cut him off. Jesus sent him home. He does not want to spend a minute with this Satan. Do you tinker with the temptation? Do you, do you, do you play with the fire? Do you play with the serpent? Trying to, trying to see whether you could defeat Satan or not? That's a very, very dangerous thing. In the, in the time of temptation, you should remember who we are as a baptized Christian. If you children, if you are listening to me, if you are infant baptized, God has left you a mark that by looking at the mark, you could come back to that God who left you with that mark upon you, the baptism. Go to our King because He knows how to fight. He knows how to win the battle. Have your Bibles go to Revelations 19. If you have Bibles, if you have physical Bibles with you next to you, I want you to go to Revelations 19 to see what kind of king he is. Oh, yeah, everybody say, yeah, Jesus is king. But what kind of king is he? Revelations 19 verse 11 through 16. And I saw... Heaven opened, and behold, a white horse, and who sat on it is called Faithful and True. He is faithful and true, and in righteousness he judges and wages war. This king knows how to fight. His eyes are a flame of fire. On his head are many diadems. And he has a name written on him which no one knows except himself. He is clothed with a robe dipped in blood. He knows 
and he's accustomed to the battle. He's clothed with a robe, robe dipped in blood, and his name is called the Word of God. Whose name? This king's name. Jesus' name is the Word of God. And the armies which are in heaven, clothed in fine linen, white and clean, were following him on white horses. I love that. Jesus is leading the way. The king is coming with myriads of armies following Jesus. From his mouth comes a sharp sword, so that with it he may strike down the nations. He will rule them with a rod of iron. He treads the winepress of the fierce wrath of God, the Almighty. And on his robe, on his thigh, he has a name written. What does it say? I love this. My favorite part. On his robe and on his thigh, he has a name written on it. Says, King of kings and Lord of lords. That's the kind of king that we look unto in the time of temptations. He's not a general king sitting on a throne. But this king, his robe is dipped in the blood. His name is the word of God. He is faithful and true and he will judge and with the sword he will strike down all these are images. Yes. But the reality as well. Robe and thigh, he has a name written down. King of kings and Lord of lords in Revelations 20 verse 10 says, The devil who deceived them was thrown into the lake of fire and brimstone where the beast and the false prophet are also. Not three devils, but like Trinity, it is a false Trinity. The devil, the beast and false prophet Referring all to the devil. And they will be tormented day and night forever and ever. This king comes and throws him into the lake of fire. And that is a mighty king that you could look up to. The third and final thing that how we could defeat. First thing is by listening to God's voice. Written word of God. Second thing is by remembering who you are. You are a baptized Christian and we have a king who is the king of kings and lord of lords. And he will come to your aid because he executes his office of a king by supporting us in all of our temptations and restraining all of our enemies. And third and final thing is this. What should you do? I think right stance is this. We cannot say, I am mature enough, or I know enough Bible and doctrine. I have lived Christian life victoriously. None of us should say that. Because 1 Corinthians 10.12 says, Let him who thinks he stands take heed that he does not fall. Our stance should always be the one that is always careful, always listening to God's Word, taking step, one step at a time, not putting confidence in our flesh, in our past histories, because once again, you are one step away from ruin. 
So right posture is what? Is this? If you will look at the reference that I've given you, do you remember in the Lord's prayer our Lord taught us to pray in the sixth petition? Lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. Oh, because there's a definite article in the evil, people say it is the evil one, referring to Satan, whichever you want to take. But one thing is clear, in the Lord's Prayer that we often recite automatically, Jesus thought it was important for Christians to know that he or she should pray daily that lead us not into temptation. Why? Because no human is strong enough to resist the temptation. And Jesus said, you need to pray this, like this, lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. And I wonder how many of us took this seriously. Jesus took it very, very seriously. You see, humble Christian will pray this prayer and hold on to the promise of God with fear and trembling. He or she will not say, you know, I am a strong Christian. No people. Look around. This year, 2022. Yes, this 2022 is my 20th year in the ministry starting as a youth pastor in a church you look around people are gone people who uh, served alongside with you with me why think about why they are gone it is a fearful thing to tamper with God's word. It is a fearful thing to tinker with Satan, the devil, the tempter. And it is a fearful thing to the fall into the hands of this living God. So, I want you to read with me in your mind where I highlighted the second half of this Answer. How should you pray about this? We pray that God would so overrule the world and all in it, subdue the flesh and restrain Satan. You should pray God should order all things, bestow and bless all means of grace, and quicken us to watchfulness in the use of them and that we and all His people may by His providence be kept from being tempted to sin. Or if tempted, that by His Spirit we may be powerfully supported and enabled to stand in the hour of temptation. Or when fallen, God forbid it, but when fallen, raised again and recovered out of it, and have a sanctified use and improvement improvement thereof, that our sanctification and salvation may be perfected, Satan trodden under our feet, 
and we fully freed from sin, temptation, and all evil forever. That's how you should pray. We should pray. And, and as we read the sixth petition, these are the Puritans who wrote this, who are serious about the pursuit of sanctification and holiness. But they are still writing fearfully. God, do not let Satan triumph over me. Let me trample over this Satan. Help me overcome his temptations. You see, they took temptations very, very seriously. So today, we talked about Satan's identity, his strategy. Now they are explained to us from this text. And even the text and elsewhere, we have talked about how to defeat the devil. May God give us grace to overcome this evil so that we may be a pure and sanctified vessel to forgot to put his treasure into this earthen vessel to glorify God and so that his holy name will not be defiled because of us. And again, take temptation seriously. Let us stay awake. Never cease praying for me, please, uh, your pastor, our elders, and for one another, for our children. But most importantly, you pray for yourself so as not to sin against God, that God may use you for His glory and for His kingdom. Let's pray.